New Zealand has just marked 120 years since women won the right to vote. But as a new year begins, this Radio New Zealand Insight asks, can women in this country look forward to a fair and equal 2014? The men didn't like it. They didn't like their wives, their daughters voting. No, they said their wives didn't want it. Their wives were quite content. My own father said, my wife is content to be as she is. And my mother said, but I'm not. <laughs> so we, we had a round home over that. <laughs> oh, I think it was quite exciting, you know. In 1893, New Zealand became the first country in the world where women could vote in national elections. This Dunedin mother, Rosalie Folletti Ivala, believes it's still really important for everyone to participate in the democratic process. There's a lot of work being done out in the, in the Pacific community, especially about getting young people to, one, enrol to vote, but two, to understand the issues and take the issues back home for them as young people, what is important. And so for my daughter who's 20, I've certainly hounded her to get out there and become familiar with things that are important to her as a young woman and as a young person living here in Dunedin and making sure that she exercises a, a vote. The latest census figures show women make up 51.3% of New Zealand's population. Just under 58% of those with a bachelor's degree or equivalent are women and close to 60% of women are in paid employment, including Ms Folletti Ivala. She says for her it's been a financial necessity, but also a personal choice. I have had some people go, well, you are going to go now to part-time with four children, and I'm like, mm, why do I need to? We are kind of sustaining things. I'm not yet mad. Um, and so I kind of feel that working... It's fulfilling some part of me that helps me go back and do those things that I need to do at home as well. New Zealand consistently rates highly in international reports on gender equality. But despite significant progress, women remain underrepresented on boards and at Parliament, earn on average 13% less than men, and sexual violence remains a serious problem. I'm Erina O'Donoghue and this insight examines some of the challenges still facing women in New Zealand. Of the 121 sitting MPs, only a third are women. I've come to speak with Labour List MP Jacinda Ardern, who was 28 when she entered Parliament in 2008. She says the first time she felt her gender was an issue was when she ran for the Auckland Central seat in 2011. You had there a campaign between two young women and this seemed to be a source of fascination. You know, we got titles like the Battle of the Babes and I read articles where the beginning of the commentary was about the length of my skirt and suddenly I started thinking more about to what degree are some of these elements that are focused on simply because of the fact that I'm a woman, the fact that I will always get asked my marital status in an interview. Jacinda Ardern says there are women who deserve to be in Parliament and New Zealand should be aiming for representation that mirrors the population. When I have conversations with, with women who are contemplating coming in here, you know, high on the list is always just the practical side of things. How do you juggle carer responsibilities? Because, you know, most women who come in here either have that primary role or want to maintain that role and do it without feeling like they're sacrificing absolutely everything to be here. And so it's logistically a very challenging thing when you're spending three days of your week in another city, if you're outside of Wellington. And how do you maintain that 
presence in um, in your family and friends' lives when you're when you're doing that. And then there's just the personal demands and rigors of the job. There are more things that we could do to make this a more family friendly place, and I do think we should start thinking about that because ultimately, we just want to attract good people to Parliament. We want to make good policies and decisions on behalf of New Zealand, and that means having a great broad cross-section of people here to do that. Kia ora, Tariana here. Morena. Oh, OK, te ora tonu. The Māori Party co-leader Tariana Turia will retire from Parliament after nearly two decades as an MP. She says she hasn't encountered any obstacles related to being a woman. You know, when I came into Parliament, Helen Clark was the leader of the Labour Party. We had a Governor-General who'd been a woman. We had the head of the court, Sean Elias, a woman. And because I'd come from such a female-dominated background anyway, yeah, I probably wouldn't have noticed it much here because Jenny Shipley was also the Prime Minister. But she describes Parliament as an inherently sexist environment. One would expect that you would be judged on your ability regardless of your gender. But here, in this place where it is quite male-dominated, always has been, white men in charge of the place, um, I, I think that that's not what comes to the fore in their thinking. You know, they automatically think of their mates and the people who they know, and uh, they're the ones they promote. But uh, we've, you know, got some pretty strong women sitting around the table who are very clear about those issues, and the numbers are improving. But, you know, we, we can't ever sit on those laurels. You know, we should be ensuring that there should be equality regardless right across the board. The former ACT Party MP, Heather Roy, believes there do need to be more women in Parliament and at board tables, but doesn't think affirmative action is the way to go. You want people to be able to fulfil the positions that they have because they have the skills and experience and bring with the, uh, to the job the attributes that are necessary to it. So. I'm not a believer in just having women around, sitting around a board table for the sake of having a female sitting in that place. There needs to be the ability there as well. And so affirmative action sometimes results in very perverse outcomes. We do need to find ways, however, of encouraging women to apply for those positions, put themselves forward for parliament, put themselves forward for board positions. Sometimes I think that there's a lack of confidence Women think that particularly areas that are traditionally male domains are too hard. And so this confidence building, I think some education around, but also from the other end, a changing of attitudes from particularly the old boys club, which does exist, there's no doubt about that, that still does exist in some, in some areas, not in all. But I've also found that the greatest advocates of having better diversity at the board table are some of the men who have been around for a long time and see glaring gaps. Mrs Roy is a mother of five, served three terms in Parliament and now works mostly in private sector roles, including as the chair of Medicines New Zealand, the industry association for pharmaceutical companies. But she warns against the idea that women can have it all. Look, we all have to make choices in life. Women have to make choices about whether they're going to be a stay-at-home mum or work part-time and... Uh, part-time caregivers but males also make the same choices and I used to uh, really enjoy being invited to speak uh, to groups about my experiences and and how I'd sort of broken through some perceived barriers 
and the theme of my discussions or talks that I would give in that situation are girls can do anything, but that doesn't mean that we can do everything. And we're often guilty, I think, of placing burdens of ourselves, expecting too much of ourselves, and thinking that we can move into the workforce and do everything that our male counterparts do, but still fulfil all those very traditional female roles at home. Heather Roy says care needs to be taken when talking about a lack of women in senior positions. Are women consciously making the decisions not to go aim for those areas because they still want to be very active in bringing up their children and their, their home roles? Or is it something more than that? And I'm not sure that we've answered that question satisfactorily because if women are consciously making decisions not to go for those senior roles, then we have to make sure that we're not pushing too hard for those things. So I think that we need to be very certain what the problem is we're solving before we embark on the solution. One of the organisations working to boost the number of women in leadership roles is the 25% group, which has set a voluntary target of at least 25% women on New Zealand's company boards by 2015. The group's convener is Andrew Barclay, the chief executive of Goldman Sachs in New Zealand. He says a survey of the top 100 companies in 2012 found that only 45 had women on their boards, filling a total of 66 seats. As of last July, that had risen to 51 companies, with a total of 73 women on their boards. Despite those numbers still being small, Mr Barclay says real progress has been made. One of the first initiatives that we went through was to sit down with all of the leading recruitment consultants and go through and just talk about, is it possible to identify women? Is the talent out there for senior board positions? And I think the, the overwhelming view was, yes, it was. And I think as we've gone through that work program, where we have got to is that the level of awareness amongst most of the top 100 boards in New Zealand is that there is good woman talent out there and there are enough women to effectively move the needle, as we say, to higher levels of women representation on boards. And I think most importantly there is a preparedness as we sort of talk one-on-one -on -one with chairmen to move towards their next appointment on boards uh, being a woman. But he says really positive empirical data has emerged in recent listings, including Mighty River Power, Sinlay and Z Energy. Andrew Barclay says just under a quarter of their board members are women. Mr Barclay says companies that have more diverse boards, and in particular have good gender diversity, consistently seem to perform better financially than those that don't. There's sort of a range of reasons why we think that that correlated relationship may in fact be causal. And they are things around simply when you have a diverse board, you better understand a diverse marketplace. And I think, you know, most of the companies that are operating either, you know, in a domestic sphere or certainly internationally understand that they are operating in very, very diverse marketplaces. I think, secondly, you better reflect the perspectives of your underlying client base. I, I went through an interesting example recently where I sat down with um, a chairman in, in the retirement village industry and sort of talked about, you know, women on, on boards and said, you know, if you thought about this, the major purchasing decision or the decision for someone to go into a retirement village is largely made by a woman. It's either a woman in a relationship deciding that her and her husband would go into a retirement village, deciding that she would go in on her own, or making a decision perhaps for her elderly parents as to where she would go. But that woman, in fact, is a key influencer in how that decision could get made. The point that comes out of that is what could be a more valid perspective to have on your board than 
the perspective of that kind of uh, person making that decision. The 2013 census data shows over a million adults, or 33%, were not in the labour force. Women made up 60% of that group. Over the past 30 years, economic productivity has been significantly boosted by women returning to the workforce after having children, with the gain estimated to be about 30%. Andrew Barclay says there's room for further growth of somewhere between 10 and 15%. He says it does take enormous positive and deliberate thought on the part of the employer to work out how to get talented women back into an organisation once they've started a family. But the benefits to the economy are huge. As you step back and you take the holistic view of this, when you look at the talent of you know women coming out of university, going into first employment, you know working in a job, getting very skilled, and then you say, well, you know you resign yourself to the fact that early thirties they will have a family and they'll largely be out of the workforce and perhaps return to some kind of not-for-profit or voluntary work in their late thirties, early forties. If you look at that as an economic proposition, then it represents something like the proposition that we had of population and skill drift to Australia that we were sort of very worried about, you know, in the last sort of three or four or five years. And simply all I say is, well, you have this huge latent pool of talent, which actually is pretty easy if you sit down and think about how to mobilise it and attract it back into the workforce. But what needs to be done to achieve this? There are things that at a um, fiscal level government can think about doing which are around minimising issues like you know, childcare costs, perhaps deductibility around childcare costs. There are things that can be done with marginal tax rates. None of these things are, you know, are on the drawing board, but we've seen progressive economies around the world put in place these kind of measures which seek to take away some of the economic barriers and put in place economic incentives to to women coming back in the workforce. And that's as much as anything about the economy getting the benefit of those women being back in the workforce than it is about, you know, those individual women necessarily getting individual benefit. But ultimately, uh, the employer has to see the light on this and has to understand that there is a huge opportunity and it has to be, you know, largely employer-driven. And so that's part of the advocacy that we as a 25% group are taking around companies as as part of saying, look, have a more diverse board. Uh, We're also saying, you know, think about how to get women back into your workforce. And we think, you know, through having that diversity on the board, then what will push down into some of these organisations is that desire to try and draw their talented young woman back into those companies once they've finished having families. An academic, Prue Hyman, has spent decades researching and writing about a broad range of subjects, including the position of older women, housing and labour force participation. How would you describe yourself? I've seen all sorts of descriptions. (laughs) Well, I mean, identity politics is controversial in itself and reasonably, but I I partly do it to be cheeky. I like to call myself the only uh, Jewish lesbian feminist economist in our terror and things like that. <laughs> Prue Hyman was an associate professor of economics and gender studies at Victoria University and wrote a book about feminist economics in New Zealand. When it comes to the so-called trickle-down effect from women in senior roles, she's sceptical but hopeful. You can talk to lots of women and women will differ about whether women are inclined to try and mentor other women, benefit them, bring them up. 
and whether they improve policy making by being aware of the issues. I think there's considerable evidence that on policy making that's the case. There's evidence that women on boards tends not only to benefit other women and also to benefit the whole um, company, that they actually do better. And the efficiency arguments are the ones that tend to get used more than, or to get be successful more than the equity arguments, actually. Um, World Bank and so on talking about engendering women, getting women at all levels because they spend more on the kids and because everything is better if you have more women at the top, all that's true. But I think you will hear some women say that there are some women leaders who don't do anything for other women, and I'm sure that's true for some. Prue Hyman supported the creation of a Ministry of Women's Affairs in the early 80s and says the fact it still exists is a significant achievement in itself. She says at the moment the Ministry is placing quite a big emphasis on violence against women and on women in leadership roles, but progress in some other areas has been slow. I think in policy terms things have only had limited impact and I argue that that's mainly because it doesn't matter how much you try and do gender-specific stuff if the main tenor of policy, I argue as an economist, is towards an agenda that is more market, less equal, the sort of trends we've been observing and are being remarked on very much at the moment, the increasing inequality stuff, then women tend to be at the lower end and particularly I think there's been perhaps more emphasis on that women's appointments file top women area at the expense of the fact that it's the low-paid women in the workforce, particularly Māori Pacific immigrant women, who are undervalued, underpaid, and that hasn't changed. It's very little change in that, although there's been some improvements in EEO and so on. The other one is, of course, women who are not in the labour force at all. The pretense that we value parenthood, we value bringing up the next generation, which is one of the most important things there is, is much more of a lip service than a reality in terms of, of commitment to those women. It's very hard for women to com still to combine bringing up the next generation and uh, being active in the paid labour force in the way they may want to. The latest government figures show a 13% gap between the average hourly earnings of men and women. Men had a median income of $36,500 and women had a median income of just over 23000 The high proportion of women in low-paid industries such as caring, cleaning and clerical work is seen as one of the main contributing factors. In the 2013 census, 63% of managers were men. But the increase in the median income since 2006 was greater for women than men, at nearly 21%, compared with just under 16. Prue Hyman says in many ways things are better for women than they were 100 years ago. Women's economic independence is assumed to be a possibility. Women can do almost anything and we're pretty lucky in New Zealand that we have a lot more freedom than in, in many parts of the world. But she says in some areas, such as attitudes towards rape, there's still a long way to go. Katrina McLennan is a barrister and journalist and has practised law in South Auckland for 14 years. She says women still can't guarantee their own safety. 
both in terms of rape and sexual assault, but also particularly in terms of domestic violence and New Zealand's appalling levels of domestic violence and the complete failure of any government to do anything serious at all to address this. And so we have thousands of incidents of domestic violence each year in New Zealand. And when a woman's killed, there might be a bit of comment in the media about how shocking this is. But actually, we don't really put these deaths and assaults in an overall context. And if we did, surely we'd be horrified and we would actually take some action. Like Prue Hyman, Katrina McLennan is disturbed by the attitudes of some towards women in sexual assault cases. She gives the example of comments made by a senior police officer about a 10-year-old rape victim. In a letter to the rapist's wife, he described the girl as a willing party in the sexual abuse. The officer later apologised and an employment investigation was launched by the police. Ms McLennan says some worrying attitudes are still being expressed. One of the problems is that there are still a lot of myths in society that's among the general public, among lawyers and judges about sexual assaults and we still to quite a degree blame the victim and talk about if the victim's a female, what was she wearing? She wore a short dress, she asked for it. She was out alone after dark, she asked for it. So I think attitudes and education, that's one issue. Police attitudes are obviously still an issue and I heard Louise Nicholas speak recently and she's actually working with the police now and she said that if a female member of her family was assaulted that yes, now she would have the confidence to tell them to go to the police. In Dunedin, Rosalie Folletti-Ivala questions how much progress has been made when so many of the issues which were being raised by the suffragettes, such as domestic violence and equal pay for equal work, are still to be resolved. And she says other obstacles also remain. I'm Samoan, Tongan and Chinese, and immediately what I think of is the um, institution of church and the impact on women. There's not been much progress there that I can see. And, and I was raised Catholic and I have not been a, a practising Catholic for my, almost all my adult life. But what I can still see there is that the place of woman is still really undervalued. So that for me is a barrier that culturally we need to get over so that women can have those speaking rights. Whether or not that's going to change, I don't know, because that's been around for so long. But still, in church, in our cultural customs, the place of woman is still behind men, yet it's the women who hold up those men. It's a chilly night here in the capital and I'm off to have dinner with the administrators of the Wellington Young Feminist Collective. This looks real good, Rach. Oh, thanks. Real hearty. Polly-Ann Pena, Tanya Savisky-Mead and Rachel Wright are in their mid to late 20s. They say for them, feminism is about equality for everyone, regardless of their gender, race, religion or sexual orientation. Rachel Wright, who's a law student, explains one of the reasons a group such as theirs is needed. We've just made a submission for the inquiry into funding of sexual violence services and those are gains that were made in the around the 70s and 80s they were set up and they were such a strong resource and they had grassroots support and people fought for them, fought for their existence so much and they've been going for some of them 20 or 30 years saving lives every day but they've just lost funding every year for the last 
five years to the point where they've had to some helplines have had to close down and Wellington Rape Crisis had to issue a statement saying it was going to close its doors one day a week and the only reason it's still open is because Hell's Pizza gave a pizza to someone for admitting a sexual assault online and when we called them out and said you can't reward people uh, admitting to a sexual crime they gave 40 grand or something to we Rape Crisis to to save face. And that kind of behaviour is the only reason rape crisis has its doors open five days a week. And that's why we can't get complacent, because that's a life-saving service mm. that feminists set up 20 or 30 years ago, and it's threatened now. She says while there have been huge gains for many women in the past 120 years, some are still disproportionately affected by poverty, violence and all sorts of social discrimination. Tanya Savisky-Mead says a lack of political representation is another problem area. Not just mm. women in power, women in parliament, mm. but issues that are really important to people's lives for women and men and trans working gay people. Having a chance to be heard and be discussed mm. and be debated in a respectful and in a meaningful, mm. progressive way. I think that we still all really struggle when we watch Parliament TV and see how what we think are really just fundamental issues to people having healthy lives, mm. um, you know, are just debated with such dis contempt and disgust mm. in Parliament mm. and in other structures of power, you know, in the boardroom or whatever. And that's, I think, is something that just really gets my goat every time mm. and really kind of gets you down, I guess, about the system that even when you have, you know, I don't know what the actual numbers are, but how many people that women there are in Parliament, but... 33%. 33%, yeah, but it's still just really depressing. Yeah. The terminology used, you know, the, mm. what issues are considered important and what aren't, all the kind of name-calling that's so gendered and kind of messed up. What, and decision-making being mm. um, so often based on economic reasoning and who's got the spending power yeah, yeah. and when you look at domestic work and you look at child rearing and that still has such a gender bias mm. women are still doing so much of the unpaid work and all sorts of caring work which is so undervalued mm. it's hard to claim that even representation in decisions that are going to be made on who's got the most money and therefore power they're going to leave out um, a lot of women a lawyer katrina mclennan hopes a new wave of feminism is beginning there's been a lot of talk in recent years, oh, women are equal, we've had a woman prime minister, we've had a woman attorney general, we've had a woman chief justice, and for a while it was thought, right, it's all done, women have got equality, but I think now it's pretty obvious that we haven't. So I hope that now is going to be the time that we're going to start readdressing some of these issues. And what I'd like to see is that 2014 is election year, so I'd love to see a woman's election agenda Aotearoa drawn up that could be put into the media, debated, women could ask politicians, are you going to support this? Because I think, yes, now is the time for us to start mobilising and doing more to ensure that women don't only just have formal legal equality, but actually that it's real concrete equality. Rosalie Folletti-Uvala is positive about what the future holds for women in New Zealand. I guess I am an optimistic person anyway, but I have absolute faith that the place of woman will be valued, valued a lot more than it is now. And I have faith that even though I can't foresee the future, that my girl children will be, will be okay. I don't know why I know, but I just feel in my gut that they will be okay. 
I'm Erina O'Donoghue, and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to contact us, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or send us a tweet at rnz underscore insight.